And we're going to look at Psalm 91 and the remaining time that we have together. William Shakespeare, in his play Macbeth, pens these words. Each new morning, new widows howl, new children cry, new sorrows slap the face of heaven. Is that a statement of a cynical, pessimistic poet? Or is it actually a description of the world in which he lived at the dawning of the 17th century? Probably the latter more than the former. Because every era has its trouble. And the person who writes this psalm, unnamed, but a person who is acquainted with trouble. But he had found a solution to his trouble. It was not a process. It was a person. He found it in the Lord Himself. Look at verse 14. I'm going to take one line. And this will be, it's actually verse 15 of Psalm 91. One line. This will be the main emphasis of what I have to share with you today. Where the writer says, on behalf of God, it's God speaking now, not the writer himself. I will be with him in trouble. That's very comforting to me because of the trouble that I experience in my life and the trouble that I see other people who know the Lord experience. And what we do know is the word trouble probably is best rendered by our word distress. Are you in distress today? Has this whole issue of the COVID-19 created distress in your life? It may pale in comparison to some other stress in which you find yourself. But the good news is that the Lord promises He will be with us in our trouble. There are, however, some contingencies or conditions for that. So the first thing we're going to look at today are the people with whom God will be present in their trouble. These people are what I'm going to describe, it's in the text I believe, are God-dwellers. What's true of these people? Well, let's look at verse 1 again. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then, if you will, look at verse 9. For you have made the Lord my refuge. He's talking to someone whom, whom he has influenced now. Even the Most High, your dwelling place. The psalmist's dwelling place was with the Most High. Now, he's influenced someone else to adopt that same approach, to be a God-dweller. What does that mean? The idea of dwelling is the idea of living in, actually. And the idea is that we who really are God-dwellers are people who find our refuge in the Lord. Not just occasionally, because the grammar of the first sentence in this Great Psalm, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, would suggest that this dwelling is not an on and off again kind of dwelling. Rather, it is a way of life for the individual. It's the modus operandi of the person who is dwelling in the Lord. What's true of God dwellers? Well, they habitually dwell in the presence of God. They find that God is the one who is ultimately dependable. They find that He is the one in whom we find our greatest purpose by delighting in Him. 
He is one that we can have conversation with. Amazingly, the God of the universe would want a relationship with me individually or with you. But the thing is, He communicates with us just like we would communicate with each other. And as we consider this a bit further, we need to understand about God-dwellers. God-dwellers are people who trust in the Lord. Look at verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is the common word used in the Old Testament. It's a word which suggests the kind of trust that is based on an individual who is faithful, ultimately faithful. And the psalmist actually refers in verse 4, the last line if you look at it, about God's faithfulness. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Our God is faithful always. If we are faithless, our God remains faithful. Is what the Scripture teaches us in the book of Second Timothy. And the Bible says, Our God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has he promised, and will he not fulfill it? Our God is ultimately, utterly dependable, faithful. Which makes putting our trust in him the wisest thing we could ever do. Everybody trusts in something or someone for their security. There's only one person who's worthy of our trust. And God-dwellers have learned who He is, the one true God. That God, by the way, is immortal, but He did become mortal in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That God is invisible, but thank Him that He became visible in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is invulnerable. Nothing can shake Him, but He came vulnerable In the person of Jesus Christ. So we have this God. When we trust in Him, there are certain evidences in our lives that would be indications that we indeed trust in Him. They are set forth for us, beginning in verse 14. The first evidence is that the person who is a God-dweller, trusting in God, is a person who loves God. Look at verse 14, the first line. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him, or her for that matter. So we who are God-dwellers show our trust in the Lord by loving him. This word translated love is the most powerful word in the Hebrew language to describe affection for. It would be something like this. If I've set my heart on something or I've set my heart on a relationship in this world, I might say that I have loved that thing or have loved that person in my life. We are to see that God the Father is the one who gives us this possibility. Now let me back off just a moment and remind you that Jesus says, He who loves me will keep my commandments. It's part of the package of showing our love to the Father. We love the Father. We love the Son, Jesus Christ. We love the Holy Spirit by being people who show that by being obedient to Him. The good news is, when we love Him, 
we're able to love others. And he doesn't leave others out of the equation when it comes to loving. In fact, when he makes that statement, which is so rich in John 14:15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In the previous chapter, he talks about his followers, his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. The commandment in the back of Jesus' mind, undoubtedly, when he says what he says in John 14, 15, is the commandment of our loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is God's calling on our lives. And this is that which he would have us to do in expressing our love to him. The person who is a God-dweller has forsaken all lesser gods in favor of the one true God to love. It doesn't mean we can't love each other, obviously. That's just been stated, I hope you heard me say it, that this is what God wants. If we love the Lord, we're fixed up so we can really love others because we're not so self-absorbed. We're able to get outside of ourselves. And here's the mystery. Christ lives in us and He lives His life through us and He loves people through us. Isn't that amazing? That He does that? We can draw on His power when we believe there's no way I can love like that. The answer that the Lord gives to us, there is, and it comes down to your trusting me and letting me reproduce my life through you. This coronavirus has really changed our lifestyles, hasn't it? Already. A lot of people who would ordinarily be here today, not here. Because of the virus scare. But I've had a couple of changes that have come to me. I'm only going to talk about one. And that is that I'm sort of detoxing from not having sports. You know? And I have, I'm not crazy about basketball, but I am too crazy about baseball. And the season's postponed and may not start at all, may not have it. And it's really quite refreshing, actually, for me because it detaches me away from those things that are somewhat neutral. They can become more than neutral than they have at times in my life where I've lifted them way higher than they deserve and put those things or activities above the Lord Himself. But when we do love the Lord, we are showing evidence that we truly trust the Lord. Now, look the middle part of verse 14, I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Here's the second evidence. A person who is a God dweller, a person who trusts in the Lord, is not only a person who loves the Lord supremely, above all other loves, but also is a person who knows the Lord, knows his name. We're not left to try to figure out what that constitutes because in the opening remarks of this great psalm, the psalmist speaks of four names of God. Let's take a moment to look at those names. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. This word is a word, obviously, that cuts away every threat, cuts every threat down to its proper size. There's no threat to the one true God. He is the most high God. And consequently, we are very wise to yield ourselves to Him 
and abandon all other rival gods so that He can be not just one in a pantheon of gods, not the supreme God among other gods. There is only one God. Jehovah God, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit of God, both of whom are God, Holy Spirit, of course, and Jesus as well. Look at the next name. Will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This is a name that is very important to us for this reason. We are frail creatures of dust. That's what the Bible says in Psalm 103. Without exception, we are all frail creatures of dust. But our weakness cannot be used as an excuse when it comes to trusting the Lord. In fact, our weakness should drive us to trust in Him for sure. And this word translated Almighty is the word Shaddai. And the God referred to by this word is one whose power is sufficient for every human weakness. This is why the Apostle Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. In my weakness, I am thrown upon the great power of God, and because I know Him, He's revealed Himself to me, I know Him. I have consequently trusted in Him. I've given Him control of my life, not just some control, but yielded completely to the Lord. The result is, I love Him. I show that by loving others. But also, I know Him, and I know Him as the Most High God and God Almighty. Then in verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. This is the word, Lord, is the word that God used to identify Himself to Moses in the burning bush experience. And this word is the word which means I am. That's what God said through the burning bush experience to Moses, when Moses asked, Whom shall I say sent me when I go to my people and to Pharaoh and said, It's time for us to leave. Let us go. This is what he said. I am. Tell them I am sent you. Scholarship in recent years has uncovered another layer of meaning, and probably it's the more accurate layer. I will be what I will be. We have a God who is not daunted by any kind of situation in which you find yourself. He will be exactly what you and I need in those moments because we are dwelling in Him. We are trusting in Him. We are growing in Him. And that growth that occurs is in deeper dependence as we abide in Him, not just occasionally, but make it our desire to know Him and consequently to make Him known too. Here's a third and final evidence that surfaces in this passage of Scripture. Well, I left out one more name. Let me touch on that quickly. The last part of verse 2, my God. Well, that seems rather mundane, my God. Were it not for the pronoun which comes before it, perhaps it could be seen that way. But my God. Now think about Most High God, Almighty God, the Lord who is with us in each and every situation, this omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. He wants a relationship with us. We can know Him and claim Him to be our God with no sense of pride because pride does not factor into the equation 
of any person's relationship. It's a relationship of grace. But he wants us to have that kind of relationship with him. Here's the third thing in verse 15 regarding what is a trait of the person who is a God-dweller and trusts in the Lord. He will call upon me. That's it. The Lord wants us to call upon him. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. This is what God says through the prophet Jeremiah in the 33rd chapter of Jeremiah. So we call on the Lord. And he responds as we're going to see in just a moment. So what are the benefits of being in this kind of relationship? Of being a God dweller. Trusting in the Lord. We know his name. We're able to love Him then properly and to relate to Him in prayer, in fellowship with Him. Well, here are some of the benefits that are shown in the passage of Scripture. We're going to confine our consideration to verses 14 through 15 and 16, but I'm going to talk about this. Look at the first one. I'm going to reread some of this. It won't hurt to do that. It gives us the context and the flow of thought. Because He has loved me, therefore I will deliver Him. So the Lord delivers us. We looked last week at the second half of what is called the Lord's Prayer. And one of the petitions is, deliver us from evil. This is what the Lord does. He does not keep us from experiencing the effects of evil around us and see them. But we are not bound to be controlled by evil personified in that figure whom we know as Satan. So he delivers us. That's a great benefit, wouldn't you say? In the book of Colossians chapter 1, the scripture talks about how God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and that domain is controlled by the evil one, Satan himself. Delivered us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. So that's a big delivery, isn't it? Praise God for having done that. For us, let's read a little further here to secure yet another benefit. I will set him securely on high. In other words, we are not able to be trifled with by the powers of darkness, the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. We can't be messed with without God's permission. He's sovereign over all those things. And He has set us on high. And ultimately, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not even death. The thing that's so troublesome to us when we think about the kind of disease this COVID-19 is, it seems at least, is the fact that it speaks of our mortality. We're not going to live forever. It speaks of cramping our Ability to do what we enjoy doing. It's just not pleasant to think about the end game of such an illness. Death is that. But the good news is that not even death can separate us from the love of God. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's an upgrade for us who know Jesus, who trust in Him. People who love Him people who know His name, people who call on Him. It's an upgrade when we leave this world. We don't have to live with a death wish. We need to live with a live wish. We want to live. Understanding that life as God designed it is certainly physical because in this body 
We house the Holy Spirit. What, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have for God, from God, and you are not your own? Therefore, glorify God in your body. We have the unparalleled privilege of not merely knowing God, but glorifying God through these bodies. The only thing that's left for us to do between now and the time we go back to heaven is to glorify God. That means honoring God. So that's another great bit. Do you like that benefit? That you are a person who can call upon Him and He will answer you also after He has set you on high. It's nice to know that the Lord hears our prayers because we pray through His Son, Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and He answers our prayers. It's awesome to think about that kind of relationship. I will be with Him in trouble. That's the basic idea of this message for us today, and I believe the big idea in the psalm itself. I will rescue Him, and that's a good one. That's closely akin to deliverance. So we, we won't need to talk more about that. I will honor him. Amazing. In the movie Chariots of Fire, which depicts the lives of two very different people, Eric Little is the one that I'm going to talk about. Eric Little was a faithful follower of Jesus. He was a God-dweller. He trusted in the Lord. He loved God more than he loved himself. And he loved the praise of God and the honor of God rather than the honor of men, which led him as he was one of the team members of the track and field team for Great Britain in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And when he was going, he had been given the opportunity to represent Great Britain in three individual events. The 100 meters, which was his best event, and it was arguable that he might be the best one in the field. The second was the 200 meters. He won the bronze medal in the 200 meters. But the third one, and this was his weakest, was the 400 meters. When he discovered upon arriving in Paris that the prelims, the qualifying match, or matches, there were several, was going to be on Sunday, he had a decision to make. He was committed to not running on Sunday. He went to the superiors, and he said, I can't do it. They begged him to do it. He said, no, I can't do it. And with that, his heart sunk a bit. He became a little discouraged because he knew he was throwing away the best opportunity he had. I've already mentioned he won third place in the 200 meters. That's quite an accomplishment for anyone to win any kind of medal at the Olympics. But on the last event, the 400 meters that he participated in, he was in the outside lane. There were eight competitors. He was on the outside lane. So he couldn't see what was happening. And the outside lane was the lane that was usually for the person who had the lowest, really the highest time in the preliminaries. But right before he stepped on the track to get ready to run, one of the masseuses who was working with the athletes from Great Britain came, and he handed him a piece of paper folded. And when he opened the paper, 
there was a quotation from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verse 30. And God was speaking, and he says, He who honors me, I will honor. And all of a sudden, what had been a gloomy outlook for him, he was buoyed by the truth of God. That God was going to be honored by him, not promising him a victory that day, but was going to be honored by him as he raced that day. And he ran for all he was worth. That's the only gear that he knew, top, end, out. And lo and behold, here was a man, and this will be, if you know anything about racing today by foot, by men in the world, his time was 49.6 to make it on the Olympic team as the 400-meter representative, or one of them, from Great Britain. There were faster men on the team from Great Britain. But he ran two seconds faster and set a world record in doing it. 47.6. We have a young man in our church who's in high school, and he runs faster than that already. So you can see what has happened over the years as it relates to this race. And God honored him. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be the best in the world at whatever you are aiming for. But he told his sister in the movie, and I suppose this was not in any way window dressing, In a conversation with her, as she was trying to talk him out of running, she says, he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel that he is glorified in my running. And indeed he was. So God honors us when we trust in him and understand what that means. Look at the last couple of benefits. With a long life, I will satisfy him. Well, not everyone who honors the Lord lives long. Some live a very short time. But typically, they live a fuller life, a more satisfying life. They have fullness of peace, fullness of joy. They have a life filled with love. And they really live. Lots of people live a hundred years and don't even ever live the way God would have them to because they're not God dwellers. God does not dwell in them and they do not dwell in the Lord. So the good news is that we have satisfaction. One of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Amen to that. And then the last thing, God will let that person who is a God dweller Behold God's salvation. Amen. In the few moments I have left, pray for me that I'll be selective in what I share so that the message that God would have for us will come through. We've talked a lot, and I've tried to really kind of hurry and edit as I've talked so far about the people with whom God will be present in trouble. We're God dwellers, right? It's important. The protection of God is promised to God dwellers in verses 3 through 13. Let's look at them. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. And these images are images of how these things sneak up on us. They're not expected. They just strike at us. And He will cover you, the Lord will, with His pinions. And under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness 
is a shield and bulwark. So we have the protection. We'll be covered by the Lord. It's the picture of a bird protecting its young, particularly a female bird protecting her young. Verse 5 says, You will be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. Attacks on our minds cause fear. Or the prospect or the actuality of being under attack physically from another human being. Of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. We're facing a pestilence. That's a big word, old-fashioned word for pandemic. We're faced with that. But we have this promise by the Lord that if we trust in Him and if we do that which is characteristic by loving Him and knowing Him and calling on Him, the result will be that we will be delivered from those things. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wickedness. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Now, follow this, please. Did Jesus know the trouble of humanity in his life? He says in John fourteen twenty seven, My peace I leave with you. And the peace which I give is not like the world's. His peace was something that was not in any way determined by the evil around him and the circumstances that grew out of that evil which impacted him. When he was in the womb, there was an effort on the devil to keep him from being legitimized. When Mary came to her betrothed, her engaged-to-be husband, Joseph, and Joseph was going to put her away quietly. He was to be commended for not exposing her. He could have, and she would have been shamed for the rest of her life. But the angel came. Remember the angel coming and saying, Hey, wait a minute, Joseph. She's telling you the way it is. This child is God's child. And then a couple of years later, when Herod the Great received the Magi and heard that there had been this king of the Jews born in Bethlehem, he sent a decree that all boy infants under the age of two dead. But once again, the angel came and spoke to Joseph and says, Get your family and get out of here. Go to Egypt. They went to Egypt and Jesus was saved. His first public ministry act in his hometown synagogue. It would be like going to your home church and preaching your first sermon. And as he taught, the people were impressed until he got to a point that confronted their misunderstanding of who God's children are. And the result was they grabbed him, took him to the brow on the hill upon which Nazareth sat, and still does today, ready to throw him overboard, which would be the equivalent of stoning. It was a form of stoning because he had blasphemed God in that setting. But he walked right out. His life was full of that kind of stuff, wasn't it? But he had peace. His peace is different. And we will not be people who are people who are free from the irritation 
and the tribulation associated with a fallen world. We will have that to contend with, but we will be free of the fear associated with it. We do not have to cower in a corner afraid of what others might do to us because of who we are in Christ. We have not received a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, the Bible says. So we trust the Lord for this. If we look a little further in this, we think about verse 11 in following, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. You should remember that the devil quoted this verse, only verse in the Bible he quoted, by the way, only section of Scripture that we have record of, to try to persuade Jesus to get off course and not follow the Lord as he was called to do in fulfilling his mission as the Savior of the world. And what the promise is, angels are real, folks. Angels are real. And they especially minister to our physical safety. When you look at the way they appear in Scripture, they're like that. And we need to see, we don't have to just go around looking for them, they're invisible. Sometimes they show up in bodily form, but typically we don't see them, but they're real. And they care for us. The Holy Spirit of God is not to be equated with angels. Angels are created beings. But what the angels do us do for us on the physical level, according to Hebrews 1, they are ministering spirits called to take care of us who know Jesus. Thank God for angels. I'm sure I've encountered a lot of them along the way and did not know. And the Bible is real clear in Hebrews 13. Be careful when you're with strangers because you may be entertaining an angel without knowing it. You may be entertaining an angel today before the day's over. Be kind to everybody. All right? Understand that. But it's good news, isn't it? Verse 12, they will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against the stone. Do you know, I can't stub my toe, and you can think what you want about my making this statement. I cannot stub my toe without God's permission. I believe in the sovereignty of God to that degree. Can't even stub my toe. Angels are going to help me avoid these things. There's no telling how much they have protected me for near misses, as they're called, because of what God promises here to us. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. When Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, he said, you're going to trample on scorpions, you're going to trample on snakes, etc., etc. Well, we know what that represents, evil, and more particularly Satan. It reminds us of the first prophecy about the coming Messiah, that the seed of the woman Eve would bruise, have his heel bruised by the seed of the serpent, but then that seed would crush the head of Satan. And that's exactly what we as the body of Christ are to do. And I'm going to finish up now by giving some suggestions about how we can apply our life in Christ to the situation, how to respond to this virus. Number one, trust in God. Look up the verse, and there will be great encouragement. Trust in God. Number one, that's first and foremost. Everything else flows from that, actually. The second thing is, be careful but not fearful. We heard that from Eric this morning. Isaiah 41.10, what does it say? It says this, 
Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. Hey, do we see a lot of people anxiously looking about themselves today? I mean, it's out of control. It's wild what people are doing. It's irrational what they're doing. And it's because they don't have God. And this is no way for us to behave. We have the Lord. He will be with you in whatever trouble He permits into your life. And we have to embrace that God and believe what that God has to say. Also, the third thing is be humble. In Second Chronicles 7.13, God says, If I shut up the heavens that there is no rain, or if I send locusts to eat up all the vegetation, or if I send a plague upon you, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. begins in my life and in your life. This is a wake-up call for us who know Christ to get right with Christ. Not to play around with being a Christian, but be sold out to the Lord. The solution rests in the Lord, but to a great extent it rests in our proper response to the Lord, putting Him where He belongs at first place. Two more quick concepts. Be hopeful. In 1 Peter 3.15, the Bible says, Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you regarding the hope that you have. Look, this may be an unprecedented era in the history of the world, especially the United States of America and the Western world, for sharing Christ with people. Because fear of death is just really resurfacing in a new way. There's been a period of time when people have not shown much fear of death because they've been fed so much garbage from so-called spokespeople, teachers of the Word of God. But we're hopeful, and it's an evangelistic opportunity beyond what we've ever had. Share Christ. When people ask you, how can you be so calm in this moment? You'll tell them, because Jesus Christ is my hope. And He can give you the same kind of calmness. Here's the last thing. Be helpful. Be helpful. We saw last week from Acts 4, 32 to 35, we saw where the Scripture says, in the new church that was formed, what did they do? They shared things. And nobody was in need. We have people in our church who need things. Practical things. Like toilet paper, soap, Kleenex, those kind of things. We're going to try to set up some kind of receptacle in the foyer and bring. When you buy something, give some of it away. When you're fortunate enough to be at a place which has stock of something, share it with the body of Christ. And when people come here who have really tried to get it or don't have the means to get it, they can freely receive from the Lord through you and me. It's awesome to think about, isn't it? I close with one statement from the writing of Paul in Philippians 2. He says, Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Let's pray.